The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org. The, the glory, and if it goes poorly, Brad should get the blame. Um, but, um, um, but as we were thinking about this topic last year, um, about kind of the relationship between theology and philosophy, um, I really wanted to have um, some, some discussion of the limits of philosophy, the limits of reason. Um, and um, those of you who have done the readings, which... You know, I don't know how many of you it is, but those of you who have done them know that they're a bit eclectic, right? They're kind of from um, a broad, uh, you know, set of places and times with different kinds of concerns. Um, I chose each of them for, for particular reasons, and maybe those will those will come out um, later. Um, so the writings are, you know, a bit diffused. They might seem a bit scattered, but I think they focus us on a kind of constellation of issues that that is really important. Um, and that all of these issues that these readings deal with are rooted in the relationship between reason and revelation, or, or philosophy and, and theology, and therefore the relation between our speech about God um, and God's speech about himself. Right? So they're all about the relationship between reason and revelation, and therefore our speech about God and God's speech about himself. Um, so I, I was kind of thinking, I was trying to think about like a good image to use for the kind of set of issues that I think these readings deal with. Um, and I came up with um, three axes. So I think these, these, um, this set of issues has implications along what I'm calling three axes. So you know, you have like an x-axis with the y-axis height and a z-axis, which is depth, right? So just kind of think about like three axes. And I'm calling these the philosophical axis, the theological axis, and the pastoral axis. And what I mean by this is that um, the question of the, the power or the limits of reason has implications for um, natural theology, for what can be proven about God in nature. So that's the philosophical axis, right? So the limits of our reason have implications for what we think is possible along that axis. Um, the relationship between reason and revelation also has bearing on questions about um, the relative status of theologians and simple believers, what Jack Tenus at Princeton University is called simple believers, so like non-theologically educated people. So if um, our rational capacities permit us deeper insight into the things of God, um, then the theologian has a kind of insight that the regular person doesn't have, and therefore, there's a greater distance between the theologian and the simple believer. Right? And finally, um, the relationship between reason and revelation also has implications, as I think Luther, you know, in particular, but also Richard Hooker in these readings brings out, has implications for the life of each believer, about how we relate to God, about who God is to us. So there's the philosophical axis, natural theology, the theological axis, you know, whether theologians, by using rational capacities, have some greater insight into the nature of God, and the pastoral axis, um, what are the implications for the limits of reason 
in thinking about how we relate to God in our own lives as Christians. Um, so I hope that was, you know, relatively clear. As I said, you know, it's a constellation of issues. It's not like a, a sort of, so this will be a kind of diffuse. I want it to be a diffuse freewheeling conversation where people are bringing in, you know, whatever they want to bring in, in addition to the things that, that the readings that we've already had. Um, so I guess, you know, um, I guess now uh, what we'll do is we'll just start with some of the questions. Um, I put them in order, and I can't remember if I like the order that I put them in. Um, but I think probably what we'll, what we'll do is we'll read a question, I'll read a question, and then I will turn to um, relevant portions of the readings that we assigned, and I'll just read those aloud, um, and then we can kind of start our discussion there. So the first question is, to what extent can we make a distinction between the knowability of God as creator and the knowability of God as redeemer? This underpins Richard Hooker's treatment. Is philosophy capable of positive knowledge in the former, but not in the latter? Luther likewise argues for a sharp distinction between the way that we think about God as our own savior, abandoning reason and descending into the darkness of faith away from the law, and the way that we think about him publicly, so to speak, alongside pagans and other um, monotheists. Um, so is this distinction coherent? That's the first question. Is, is it actually coherent? Is it possible to have a kind of strict separation between God the Redeemer and God the Creator? And the second question is, if Luther is right, what implications does this have for how we think about God along the axes that I was mentioning. So just to turn to a couple of places in the, in the actual readings, I chose um, readings from Luther from throughout his career. So I start late with his lectures on Galatians and then move early to the Heidelberg Disputations and um, Bondage of the Will. Um, so here's what he says in, in the lectures on Galatians. Whenever you consider the doctrine of justification, so immediately we're in a kind of pastoral context, right? We're in, we're in how, when, whenever you're considering how you relate to God, and wonder how or where or in what condition to find a God who justifies or accepts sinners, then you must know that there is no other God than this man, Jesus Christ. Take hold of him, cling to him with all your heart, and spurn all speculation about divine majesty. For whoever investigates the majesty of God will be consumed by his glory. I know from experience what I am talking about. But these fanatics who deal with God apart from this man will not believe me. Take note, therefore, in the doctrine of justification or grace, that when we all must struggle with the law, sin, death, and the devil, we must look at no other God than this incarnate and human God. But when you leave the doctrine of justification and have to engage in controversy with Jews, Turks, or sectarians about the power, wisdom, etc. of God, then you must use all your cleverness and effort and be as profound and subtle a controversialist as possible, for then you are in another area." So natural theology, we relate to God one way. Our reason has uh, one set of capacities, it seems. And in the doctrine of justification, as we relate to God, reason has a different, um, a different place. Um, and, then, and then later, he says, this, uh, he says this in a different section below. Um, I'm saying this in order that we may learn the doctrine of justification with the greatest diligence and distinguish most clearly between the law and the gospel. Here let reason be far away, that enemy of faith, which in the temptations of sin and death relies not on the righteousness of faith or Christian righteousness, of which it is completely ignorant. 
but on its own righteousness, or at most on the righteousness of the law. As soon as reason and the law are joined, faith immediately loses its virginity. He's getting that language from Meister Eckhart, so it might seem a bit strange, but there's a kind of German mystical tradition there. Reason, <laughs> faith loses its virginity, uh, for nothing is more hostile to the faith than law and reason. Nor can these two enemies be overcome without great effort and work, and you must overcome them if you are to be saved. Therefore, when your conscience is terrified by the law and is wrestling with the judgment of God, do not consult, do not consult either reason or the law, but rely only on grace and the word of comfort. Here, take your stand as though you had never heard of the law. Ascend into the darkness where neither the law nor reason shines, but only the dimness of faith. So, to return to the questions then, um, is a distinction in, between these two realms possible? And if Luther is right, what implications does this have for how we think about God? Yes. And make sure, I'm the only one who has a mic, so you guys get to hear my lovely voice at very loud volumes, but you don't have mics, so speak up, because we want to hear your lovely voices at very loud volumes. Yeah, so let's let's let me just read briefly um, a couple of other things. This is from his early work, where he's even a little bit sharper on the distinction. Um, so in the Heidelberg Disputation, he says the back and visible things of God are placed in opposition to the invisible, namely his human nature, weakness, foolishness. The apostle in First Corinthians one twenty five calls them the weakness and folly of God. Um, and then 
below, he says, in other words, he who wishes to become wise does not seek wisdom by progressing toward it, but becomes a fool by retrogressing into seeking folly. And then in the bondage of the will, he, he says this, maybe this will kind of clarify your, add some extra clarity. He says, we have to argue in one way about God or the will of God as preached, revealed, offered, and worshipped, and in another way about God as he is not preached, not revealed, not offered, not worshipped. To the extent, therefore, that God hides himself and wills to be unknown to us, it is no business of ours. So that's kind of the, the sort of starkest opposition he puts it in, I think you can find in the bondage of the will. Um, so, I mean, it, it seems, I, I will say in the Galatians commentary, reason associates both the law and reason with light. So he, he's, he's kind of actually taking... Dionysius, so the reading that I provided is pseudo-Dionysius. Dionysius says that what's necessary is you ascend up the mountain like Moses and you leave the light behind and you enter the dimness of faith. And Luther um, has an early admiration for Dionysius and then he kind of sours on him um, pretty quickly once, once he sort of begins his career as a reformer. But he takes this, the Dionysian structure in his Galatians commentary and he says that, um, that reason and the law are illuminating. They, they illuminate us and our sin before God. And um, so what's necessary then is to ascend beyond the illumination that condemns us into the darkness, which is faith, right? So he has this kind of association of reason with light um, and faith with darkness. So I think in, in, in the Galatians commentary, at least, he means reason... Um, he, he essentially equates the function of reason and the law. So to, to, to your point, he equates the function of reason and the law. Um, I'm not going to make that claim throughout his corpus, but in the Galatians commentary, that seems to be what's going on. So he says, we begin in ignorance um, of our sin. He's kind of tracking Romans 1 here. We begin in ignorance of our sin. The law comes and reason comes and they illuminate our sinfulness. And then we have to ascend away from light back into darkness. So we move from ignorance, which is darkness, into light, and then back into darkness. So it's kind of a, a transformation of the Dionysian motif. Um, yeah. Other thoughts on, on Luther? Yeah. I'm wondering how you can make this, especially the early Luther, like a very stark distinction and still uphold like that there's not two gods, there's a hidden god and a God or a, a pastoral God of the doctrine of justification and then this other God that we talk about when we talk about it. And like, how do we make sure that we're speaking of the same God um, and not just two different gods altogether? Yeah, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> I think it would go back to the former orthodox distinction between pure and mixed articles, and that's how we maintain that there's not two gods in the world, but strictly since we're talking about the principle of supernatural theology, scriptures, and there are things that are revealed therein that are not revealed in nature. But, since we're, if we're looking at natural theology, metaphysics, etc., God's simplicity, that would fall under a mixed article, something that's taught both in scripture and also in nature. So therefore, this is something that I saw in Pilates, also see in church when he talks about the object of theology, he distinguishes between God as covenanted, so God as redeemer, and then God as Lord. And that's how he makes that, that there's not two gods, but there's pure articles, such as the incarnation, such as the trinity, and then there's mixed articles, such as God's simplicity, 
such as you know natural law, etc. So I think that's how we, we make the distinction and not saying that there's two gods. Okay, so did people over there catch that? The the okay, so he was he was saying the Reformed Orthodox have a distinction between pure articles and mixed articles of religion, right? So the pure articles are those that are revealed in Scripture, and I think exclusively in Scripture. And the mixed articles are articles that are taught both in Scripture and also via reason. So a pure article is the incarnation, the crucifixion, redemption. Um, a mixed article would be something like divine simplicity, which is you know theoretically available to reason and is also taught in Scripture. So that would be another way of kind of distinguishing um, that would be I, I think that's not quite Luther's distinction but it's an, it's a kind of related set of distinctions that might have advantages uh, you know potentially to Luther's yeah so um, I wonder if I can introduce another distinction so is it, so there's a distinction between whether um, supposing that that Luther's right that that uh, there's, there's the difference um, is that a, is that an essential difference or is it a merely contingent difference so if you're leaning on just the fact that this is the way God set up nature, right, and this is the way God, set, God set up salvation history, it might be just as a matter of contingent fact that you can't know everything you need to know without reading the Bible, right? You can't get it just from taking a walk in nature. Right? Mm-hmm. But Luther, drawing on Dionysus, seems to want to say something stronger, that there's something, you know, making this really strong contrast between reason, that, that if you try to reach God through reason alone, you're never going to... You're never going to get there, and that seems more than just a contingent fact for the way that God set you. Know, how many clues God, you know, how many how many breadcrumbs God happened to leave or not? Like it seems to be quite central to this this deep distinction between faith and reason. So it's a, it's a central difference, stronger claim. Yeah, yeah, I think th- I think that's very perceptive. That's certainly the retor- where the rhetorical emphasis falls, right? But then he makes that pesky little comment about um, when you're, you know having controversies with the Turks and sectarians. And then he says, and then you got to just, you know, load the cannons, use the big guns, be a subtle controversialist. And that seems to, to, to imply that um, the truths of Christianity uh, are rationally defensible to some degree in relation to unbelief. Right. Um, so, okay, so I saw David has had his hand up and then Colin. Oh, you small thing? And, and, okay, Colin. Yeah, I think, I think that there's one line in the Heidelberg Disputation that might be helpful here. He says, Now it is not sufficient for anyone, and it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he recognizes him in humility and shame of the cross. So I, I almost wonder if, if Luther would say necessary contingent, um, he'd probably lean toward necessary. On the other hand, all I really want to say is that there's really no point in striving to seek God um, in any other way but through the cross. It just has no benefit. Um, you know, it won't save you. And, you know, Augustine argues, uh, well, you should say, um, 
I think Luther thinks, and, and Pascal, for example, also thinks that it actually brings you further away from God because it inflates you with pride. So as you, as a philosopher, you strive to seek after this natural knowledge of God, you actually are drawn further away from him because of pride. So, so something like that may, may also be back of mind for Luther, which is to say that the only thing that really matters is the cross. And if you don't understand, if you don't approach God through the cross, even if you can do all of this other stuff, it just really is of no, no benefit at all. Yeah. Um, so we had David, and then a couple more comments over here. So one of the, this, this quote from uh, Lectures on Galatians strikes me as, as quite curious, and, uh, because you find almost exact statements, slightly more elaborate, but I mean almost exactly the same in Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles, where he talks about uh, how we are going to approach the heretics. Well, we will use the whole Bible. When we approach the Jews, we use the Old Testament. And when we approach the pagans and, and and the atheists, well, we'll use reason. And I'm fairly certain he gets that from Gregory of Nyssa in the prologue to his great cat, greater catechism, where Gregory of Nyssa says essentially the same thing. Uh, so two comments on this. First of all, does anyone know where Luther got this from? Luther being almost always portrayed as this enemy of Aquinas. I, I have a hard time believing he got this from the Summa Contra Gentili. So I wonder if there's any other source that Luther might have got the same idea from. Now the other comment here is, if it is coming from the tradition in some way, bleeding down maybe from Gregory of Nyssa, then I don't know that I would say he, that, that Luther is saying it's, that this knowledge of God that we can use against the Turks and the Jews and so on is useless. Rather, it sounds like he's saying it's useful for, at minimum, evangelism to bring them to the recognition of the truth of Christianity, and therefore it's not a useless truth. It's a useful truth for bringing people who do not accept the authority of scriptures to accept the authority of scriptures. So that's my first that's my comment on that. Was my first other question is really, where does he get this from? Does anyone have any ideas? No. That's right. He's subtweeting Thomas. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, my suspicion is this is one of those things that's just sort of in the air. Yeah, okay. But um, yeah. So. But I can't. I can't prove that. So um, I saw some other hands. Um, yeah, we'll go there and then here. Can you? Sorry. Can you speak up a little bit? Thanks. I know it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, I think I think um, you know Luther does develop. I mean, the Reformed really sort of develop and emphasize the three uses of the law. They're in Luther. He tends to emphasize the law as condemning, but he does. I mean, there's this one line. I forget what treatise is in where he says, you know, Christians should be guided by the Spirit, but some of them really are stupid enough that they need the law to teach them how to live. You know, <laughs> they still they still need the law as a teacher. Um, um, so, but I mean, yeah, I don't think he has like a purely negative view of the law. It's just that that's the one that gets sort of um, the popular Luther has the very negative law because that's sort of foregrounded in his earlier works. 
Um, but then he does develop, and I mean Psalm one nineteen. He he will he will wax eloquent about how beautiful. But he he normally when he's talking about um, the well, I shouldn't say normally. Often when he talks about the Old Testament, you know, um, kind of praise of the law, he'll say the word. You know, so he thinks he thinks that law is a kind of shorthand for all of God's word to us, right? So I think um, the the decidedly legal dimensions of the law tend to get minimized, at least in his rhetoric, or how he how he talks about these things. So, um, other thoughts on Luther before we kind of start incorporating some of the other readings? Yeah. So Luther has this kind of overwhelming experience that kind of rips apart his previous stances on. I mean, he's a, he's a new. New Testament scholar, right? You think he'd have a square relationship with Jesus, but it's it's only in light of the experience that rips away all of this academic knowledge that he's able then to come to some kind of reflection on who it is that Jesus Christ and God are for him, right? And so he's reflecting in some ways not just on scripture and tradition, but also on his experience of, of grace. And I'm not sure, I mean, it's always been something that I've been curious about. How does he square his experience of grace with reason, you know? And where what what is prior, you know? Yeah, thoughts on that? Yeah. But I would say, I mean, I think this gets to that, the way that, and I think it's helpful the way you play this out, um, reason is operative in terms of the law, like in that kind of way he's talking. Reason is what's telling you um, that you can keep the law, that you can do this and that, and that's when he's wanting to move beyond that. Um, Like that's what's happening. Um, And so I think think that's that's what's going on there. Right, so there is a use for reason um, but the use is, if you're if you're sort of charting the progression, the reason is condemnatory and a kind of necessary precondition for coming to faith, right? Because you need to be condemned to become aware of your sin before you you believe. Uh, okay, one last thing, and then we'll we'll yeah. start incorporating others. I've got a question about reason of Luther. I mean, does reason say keep the law? Is that something that you can discern through reason that's false, um, or does reason say actually you can't accord with the God's yeah, I think you can make that reasonable argument, but I'm thinking what he is saying is that reason as it's operative in the fallen human being in this realm is telling you all the things you can do. <laughs> it's the rich young ruler walking away sad. Right. That's, you know, and it's, it is very experiential, you know, and that's why I think it's helpful to have the way you kind of split this um, in that realm of personal salvation Yeah, it's, I think the impulse that he wants to sort of combat is the, I'm a good person. You just need to be a good person, right? That, that's, that's sort of like what reason tells us, right? It's like, well, you just need to be a good person. I'm a good person, you know. And you hear people talking like this all the time. And so. Um, and that's what accords with his own monastic experience, right? Like he was trying super hard to yeah. keep the law, and it was failing. Right.
right. Yeah, Mark. So, so, Craig, you know, you knowing Luther, what you just said, wasn't there a saying in that tradition and even in the Middle Ages, Falsetti quote, in S do that which is in you, right? Which relates to, are you, have you heard from your familiar with that or anybody else? Not enough to. Okay. Falsetti quote, in S do that which is in you, which means what you just said. Yeah, there was a, a kind of scholastic maxim, do what lies within you and God will not deny his grace, right? Which is this sense that if you sort of strive to be obedient and to love God, he will sort of witness your um, striving and condescend and and give his grace so that you're able to. um, And Luther goes on rants, you know, semi-regularly about this and will say, if you do what lies within you, you're only going to hell. You know, don't do what lies within you, Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So... Um, okay, let's let's move to the second question because this we can keep talking about Luther, but this second question will bring in. Um, um, actually, let me. So let let's actually skip to the third question because I think this will kind of take us to the relationship. We've been focusing a lot on pastoral. This will take us to kind of philosophy and, and theology. So. Um, so at least like in tradition, traditionally, it seems broadly, you can say that in the order of being, God comes first, uh, and we're created in the likeness of his nature. But in the order of knowing, it seems, um, or the question is, is this reversed, such that we begin with the familiar, our own nature, and conceptualize God in likeness to it, right? So um, God is prior to us in the order of being, right? We are his creatures, so every perfection that we possess exists in a prior and perfect form in him, right? So this is Dionysius and Thomas and so on. Um, But in the order of knowing, is it the case that this is reversed? And we begin with creaturely concepts, creaturely knowledge. Um, Thomas says in question one of the Summa, um, you know, it's fitting that scripture uses these creaturely concepts because we derive all of our knowledge from sense. And so scripture communicates with us because we know these things first. So is it the case that we begin with the familiar, our own nature, and conceptualize God in likeness to it? So Abu Kura is the most explicit about this methodology, and Bart is the most critical. Um, and so then the question is, how should we think about the necessity of revelation given the priority of our nature in the order of knowing, according to St. Thomas and, and Abu Kura? So... Um, so Abu Kura, for example, this isn't in the reading I gave, but he actually tries to prove the Trinity. He proves the eternal generation of the Son by looking at human generation. So he says, look, every perfection that exists in us um, has to exist in God because we can't say that we have a perfection that God doesn't have. One of our perfections is generation, begetting. Therefore, God must beget. And so he begets a son. Um, it's kind of a strange argument, um, and I wouldn't have put Abu Kura in here except that he was like a huge deal in the, in the 8th and 9th centuries. He, his work was translated out of Arabic by the Patriarch of Jerusalem and sent all over the Byzantine Empire. He was like the bane of the Miaphysites. So he's like a really big deal, and he makes this argument repeatedly. Um, so that's the sort of, of argument he's making. And then the question is, okay, well, if you can prove the Trinity from, from creaturely concepts... Um, from philosophy, then what need do you have of revelation? Like, what, what actually is the function of revelation? Um, and so then the final question is, to what, 
to what concerns do Bard's objections respond, and should we be sensitive to them? So let me just read a couple of things from, from Abu Kura and Bart. As I said, Abu Kura is a you know, kind of major theologian in the, the 8th and early 9th century. Um, he's one of the very first theologians to write in Arabic. He's the Bishop of Haran, which is now in southern Turkey. His writings are very famous, and um, like I said, the Patriarch of Jerusalem has them translated into Greek and spread throughout the Byzantine Empire. Um, and one of the reasons he's interesting is because he lives in a situation that's actually sort of similar to ours, right? So, so for us, the end of Christendom is a kind of new thing, right? This, this sort of like hyper-pluralism that we find ourselves in is a little bit um, disconcerting. But Abu Kura is living in a, in a very similar environment. There are you know, dozens of different religious communities in Haran. It's one of the very few places in the 9th century where paganism still existed, Um, So paganism had been stamped out pretty much everywhere else except like in this region of Turkey. Um, And so he starts this treatise um, and he says, I grew up on a mountain where I knew no other people. One day, a certain need compelled me to descend to civilization and to the community of my fellow human beings. And I observed that they adhered to a variety of religions. And so then he just has to work out the religion. So he says, you know, the Hanifs, and then I left them and went to some Samaritans, and they said, don't listen to them, join us. And then I left them and went to the Jews, and the Jews said, don't listen to the Samaritans, listen to us. And then I went to the Christians, and they said, don't listen to them, listen to us. And then I went to Manichaeans, and then Marcionites, and then a Bardasian, and then I was met by Muslims. Right? So he's, he's dealing with a context in which there are um, innumerable, I mean, I shouldn't say quite innumerable. He says, there are so many of these, we could continue listing them, but we just don't have the time. But there are so many different religious communities that he feels um, sort of pushed back onto reason. He says, um, each community has, what does he say? Each community has three things. They each claim to have a god. They each claim to have something permitted and forbidden. And they each claim to have a reward and a punishment. But they disagree about the attributes of God. They disagree about what is permitted and forbidden. And they disagree about what the reward or punishment will be. So how do we determine which one of these is right? And he comes up with this long frame story about a king and a son, and you, know, you guys can read that if you want. But this is the, the kind of key quote, key couple quotes that I wanna, want to point to. He says, um, we must lay the books, that is the, the revealed books that all of these communities claim, we must lay the books to one side and inquire of the mind how, from the likeness of human nature, we might know God's attributes, which our senses do not see and our minds do not comprehend. So very explicitly, Abu Kura is saying, we have to set revelation aside. We have to set the scriptures aside for the purpose of determining which religion is true. And we have to look at human nature, kind of begin. And then eventually he'll bring in scripture and say, okay, now which, which set of scriptures confirms what we know via nature? Um, and of course, those are the, the Christian scriptures. Um, but he says we have, to, we have to put the books aside. And the procedure that he outlines is... Um, this procedure that Dionysius championed. So we look at a perfection in the creature. We know that, that God creates all things. We know that all of the, the perfections in creatures pre-exist um, in God in a prior and perfect way. And so we look at the perfections of a creature and we affirm those of God. So he uses the example of Adam. God is alive. Nevertheless, we know that God exists you know, in a way that's infinitely different from our existence. And so we have to deny that God has the kind of life that Adam has. So, and he, you know, he says, um, 
God's life is not like Adam's life, but contrary to it. So also we see that Adam has knowledge and say, if Adam has knowledge, he who caused him to be thus must surely have knowledge. Nevertheless, God's knowledge is not like Adam's knowledge, but transcends it and is contrary to it. So when faced with religious pluralism and the challenges of, of paganism and Islam, Abu Qura says, what's necessary is to set the books to the side, to look at human nature, to begin from first principles, which is that God is the creator, that God is good, he would not have left us without some knowledge of himself, and to begin thinking about what this God must be like on the basis of human nature. Um, Barth is extremely critical of this um, method, uh, famously critical of this method. Um, and so I just want to read something from the, the church dogmatics, and then we can kind of set everyone loose to, to continue discussing. Um, so he's trying to figure out how our words can be predicated of God. So Abu Kura says we make an affirmation and then we deny it because God has whatever we predicate of him in a, in a perfect way. And Bart is very unsatisfied with this kind of like traditional affirmation negation or analogy, this traditional form of analogy. So here's what he says. He says, in other words, we do not attribute to our views, concepts, and words a purely fictional capacity so that the use we make of them is always hedged in by the reservation of an as-if. Right? So he's denying equivocity. It's not the case that we can't speak about God at all. But because God, who is always God in this relationship, takes the part of man, there is genuine correspondence and agreement. Indeed, it is not the case that when he authorizes and commands us in his revelation to make use of our views, concepts, and words that God is doing something inappropriate. Because if they are to be applied to him, our views, concepts, and words have to be alienated from their proper and original sense and usage. No, he takes to himself something that already belongs originally and properly to him. So that's the key move that Bart's making. Our concepts, our words, our um, rational capacities originally and properly belong to God. They've been alienated from him by the fall, but they originally and properly belong to God. Although his action is pure grace, he does not perform a metabasis ace allogenos, a kind of transformation into another genus, um, kind of uh, violation of nature, basically. Um, he is righteous in all his works, and therefore in this work too. Creatures who are the suitable object of our human views, concepts, and words are actually his creation. But our thought and our language in their appropriateness to this object are also his creation. Therefore, the truth in which we know this appropriate object in the way appropriate to us is his creation, his truth. It is his truth in a very different way from what it is, uh, from what it is ours, with all the distinctions of the creator from the creature. It is obviously his truth originally, primarily, independently, and properly, because creatively. It is our truth only subsequently, secondarily, dependently, and improperly, because creaturely. A reversal of the relationship, a control of God by man is therefore excluded and impossible. Um, so basically all of these concepts belong originally to God. They only apply to God because God condescends to them and by a miracle of grace makes them fitting um, in our speech about him. And so this, this kind of conception of, of, of the relationship between reason and revelation would clearly rule out something like Abu Kura's method. Right, which begins from creaturely concepts and tries to work up to some understanding of God on the basis of the fact that he's creator. Um, and Bart thinks that, that that's not 
that's not possible. It's not even desirable. Um, so anyway, I just kind of wanted to, to read those couple bits and then open it up for, for questions. So if we're looking at Abukura, what's the necessity of revelation? If we can get everything that he gets via reason in our disputes with, with non-believers, what's the necessity of revelation? And if we're looking at, at kind of Bart's critique, I mean, is, is his position sustainable? Um, is it something we should adopt? How does it position us relative to unbelievers when we have to dialogue in kind of public, public fora that are accessible to common, common reason? Thoughts on those? Yes. That's great. No, someone has to do it. It's not, it's not that we don't get it through created things. It's that, um, so in like Thomas, metaphors, most speech about God applies um, in an improperly literal way, right? So it's, it's, it's metaphorical. So when scripture says that God has, this is the example I've been, you know, jabbing on incessantly about to everyone who will listen today. But, you know, um, when scripture says that God has an arm or a nose, that's a metaphor, and, and the, the sort of proper sense of that claim, that those concepts properly apply to creatures. What it is to have an arm or to have a nose belongs properly to creatures, and we, we predicated of God improperly. Right? Bart, which is to say that God doesn't literally have a nose, um, we have to negate we have to make a negation. So we say that God has a nose, but God doesn't have a nose. He has a nose in a way that's unlike any nose. And then with Dionysius, we just end by saying nothing, right? Um, Bart, I, I, I don't mean that badly. I just, that's just what he says. Um, Bart reverses this. So Bart says, um, um, where does he say it? We use our words improperly and pictorially. As we can now say, looking back from God's revelation, when we apply them within the confines of what is appropriate to us as creatures. When we apply them to God, they are not alienated from their original object and therefore from their truth, but on the contrary, are restored to it. So what Bard says is that actually, when I say Andrew has a nose, that's an improper predication. It's proper to predicate having a nose of God, and it's improper to predicate it to us as creatures because it exists imperfectly in us as creatures but that perfection exists perfectly in God. So it's not like occasionalism. He, he thinks that these creaturely concepts have their kind of own sphere, but that sphere is actually improper locution. Um, it's metaphorical. So he gives the example of a lion. God actually is lionness. And when we say a man is like a lion uh, or the lion is like a lion, um, there are um, imperfections in our understanding of lion as as we apply it to creatures. Yeah, Joseph. Uh, just to follow up on Andrew, would it nevertheless be proper to say that whereas for, it seems like an Aquinas what happens with 
whether you're going proper to improper or improper to proper. Sorry, could you speak up a little bit too oh, for the people in the whether Yeah. It seems like in Aquinas, whether you're going proper to imp or improper to proper in the case of Aquinas, uh, uh, you are. Uh, what generates knowledge of God, nevertheless, is a motion of the mind taking where creature, where the world of creatures is shoving that motion of the mind. And I guess what I'd want to ask about Bart is, even if he makes the move, right, Andrew doesn't really have a nose, uh, God has the ultimate nose. Uh, <laughs> even if that's the move, uh, for Bart, is that a move that... Uh, uh, whose conclusion is found through a natural motion of the mind, or is there a kind of an apocalyptic inventhood to, to your mind's ability to move from A to B? Yeah, it's the, latter. It's, it's, a, it's the it's, latter. it's an internal motion of the mind. Yeah, yeah no, for Bart, I mean, he even says it's a miracle. Uh, it's, he, he, he explicitly says... Um, Knowsness must be revealed. Yeah, right. I mean, we, we, I, mean, he, I mean, he says this famously like with Christ, right, that you actually don't know what it is to be a human being until God has revealed Christ to you. you. So so whatever you think human nature is, you actually completely misunderstand it until you've seen Jesus Christ in the event of his revelation. So um, why, why have rationality when you have magic? <laughs> well, what do you mean? So, no, expand on that. What do you mean? That's arbitrary. I mean, some people get it and some people don't. I mean, maybe we're comfortable with the predestined few get to have this intellectual capacity. But the dummies... I mean, how do you how do you distinguish? How do you exercise it if it's just that kind of magical link? I mean, miracle is probably the more christened term, but it's effectively magic. Thoughts on that? Well, that's great. Uh, so are, do you, uh, yeah, yeah, you want to follow up on that? In the so I typically don't find myself defending Bart on a lot of things. See, people would if they read him a little bit more. I'm just saying, people would if they read him more. So the a classic example, you teach your child the Our Father. Right. Now they're naturally going to start to think about God as Father based on their knowledge right. of their earthly father. Right. But at some point, Scripture, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, gives them a knowledge of fatherness that is more proper than they could ever experience by their earthly father, such that there is a flip at some point that the fatherhood of God now starts to teach the child what a true father is supposed to be like. Um, that, so that's kind of... I agree with you, but that still feels like you're working up the Aniologia Intius, you know, rather than you make this magic jump down and then back. Uh, I don't know. It still feels like a working up, but the, I agree with the clarification. So. Okay, so Mark, yeah, and, then, well, and then we'll go back there. Yeah, Nathan, that's exactly what I was going to say in different words, is that Auntie's a father. Auntie is a father. Godfather. And no, I didn't mean Godfather. I meant um, God is a father in a, in a more excellent way than any one of us could be a father. Right? So is that, that reflects what you're saying, but in a different way. Yeah, so, think, so, yes, I with that, I agree with Bart. I think Bart would say that can't, while maybe initially, experientially, you could start relating your knowledge of your earthly father to the heavenly father, to actually know God as father that goes more excellently than any father you could 
actually know, there has to be some sort of divine illumination. There has to be some sort of encounter with God through Scripture that cannot be accounted for simply by experience or reason. Bart really likes the verse, um, I think it's Ephesians 3.15, right? Um, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family you know, right, the Father in Heaven from whom every family is named, right? So, so he sees that there's this priority in the naming. God um, is the Father. I was reading it um, yesterday, the Patera, um, and then uh, from whom every family, Patria, is named, right? So there's this kind of, um, so every family derives it from the Father. Okay, but um, there, and then to, to David, yeah. So, uh, so uh, maybe, the, maybe the last comment uh, is, is helpful to my question, but it still seems, seems like going back to what they were saying, it's not clear, though, it, uh, that uh, Bart necessarily should um, have a problem with Abakura's method there, right? So, I mean, uh, so if you just do the, if it's just the flip thing, right, right so the, 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 the perfect is God and the imperfect is us, I mean, it seems like uh, relation of analogy is, is a symmetric relation, right? Like the relation of identity, right? So if, if A is analogical to B, then it should also be the case that B is analogical to A. Right, so you should be able to climb up from B to A. Now, maybe to get all the way there, uh, as you would say, you, know, you, you need uh, the grace of the Holy Spirit or something. But it's not clear why, based on merely the move that we've been highlighting in Bart, that that's necessarily conflict with that person. Yeah. So I guess the question would be, and then I'll turn it to Dave because he w- he wants to talk. Um, but I guess the question would be: Is getting part of the way there actually getting there? And what is it that we've arrived at if we've only gotten part of the way there? And I think Bart wants to say, if we've gotten part of the way there, we've gotten to an idol. Um, well, this, but this is just about, in terms of, uh, you know, you've got a non-believing friend, and you want him to make him become a Christian. It seems like Abakura's general advice, not having done the reading, I confess, but, uh, you know, it's still good advice, even taking Bart's theological view on board. Yeah, right. yeah. I was I, I toyed with giving people like fifteen minutes at the beginning of this to do the reading because like you know I mean we know that people don't do the reading, and uh, Brad was like, well it's only fifteen minutes, won't give them much time anyway. So I was like, all right, we'll just we'll just plow in. So David, what did you want to say? Uh, your explanation of like uh, the human knows God, you know the, the ideal knows the lion. God is lion per se. Maybe you can answer this for me. This just sounds a whole lot like Plotinianism. Or, or, or like a, a straight-up Platonism, where what I'm seeing, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, in fact, I mean, Aquinas will integrate this in his own work, where whatever good we see here, I mean, we may call it good, we may use it to ascend, to a certain extent, to understand divine goodness, but in fact, metaphysically, it's the other way around. God is absolute right. goodness. In the order of being, it's... In the order of being, yeah. this is yeah. good only because God is good. Right. And so, I mean, I hear that, what you're saying, and maybe I'm just misunderstanding it. It sounds very classical. I mean, it sounds... No, I think insofar as Bart makes the claim about the order of being, he's in complete agreement. Um, um, the 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 sort of reversal is in the order of knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Um, at least that's where he thinks he's. I mean, maybe he's not being as original as he thinks he is, but that sort of he, he sort of flips it so that um, so that all speech is properly predicated of God uh, or in an originary sort of pre-fall state, and improperly predicated of creatures. Um, and after the fall, still improperly predicated of creatures, but only by a miracle of grace, properly predicated of God again. Yeah. So I don't know if that helps. I can't speak to like you know Plotinianism, but but um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's what's going on. A little. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Add further. So this, I don't know if this was in the reading. I've done the reading at some point, not now. 
But the irony is that Abukura, you know, goes to the same place, right? So uh, he has this really funny tangent uh, to the argument where he says, well, the Saracens could say that um, Allah generates everything, but you know, Allah generates humans and dogs and asses. And uh, if you don't have the generation be equal, like we do of the sun, well, Allah is just the Lord of the asses. How great is your God? And so because he then makes this motion yeah. to say God must be great, he ends up going back into that higher level that you say. So fatherhood would be greater than our fatherhood. And I think it's just important to clarify for him. And, and it's interesting yes, that by that being a pure rationalist, yeah. you get to the same conclusion. Well, yeah, you get to the same conclusion in the order in the order of being, I think. And yeah, I think that's 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 the most remarkable, interesting argument for why the Trinity is necessary. It's just very strange, and I love it. Just one but. more. Do you think that the context is different? So I'm just thinking of like, you know, the organon's getting translated out of Syriac into Arabic. You're writing running up to the Muatazilla movement, Al Kindi, Al Farabi. So like, everybody loves Aristotelian modes of logic. Um, and so it's that kind of hotbed of rationality making him more susceptible to being open to this kind of discursive reasoning rather than whatever's going on in the 20th century. That's interesting. I don't know. You know, I know, I mean, he precedes the kind of like heights of um, Islamic Aristotelian philosophy. Um, so, you know, he, he doesn't actually seem super Aristotelian in my sort of limited, admittedly, you know, readings, engagement with him so far. I'm just now getting into the, some of his philosophical treatises where he'd be talking about things that might display how Aristotelian he is or isn't. Um, but, but I think it, at the very least in, in this text, he presents it as a problem that all of us are faced with in a pluralistic context, right? That everyone, you, you start on the mountain, you're alone, you come down the mountain and you think, oh my goodness, you know, these people say this, these people say this. There has to be a God. He sort of assumes there's a God. That is one difference between his context and ours. He assumes there's a God. Um, but how do we know? And he says, so it's kind of like a veil of ignorance style, you know, um, argument, right? If we just sort of pull ourselves out of our own religious commitments and we just um, don't assume any, any, any of those prior commitments and we just start thinking about what, you know, God must be like on the basis of what we see... And he thinks that's the only method for um, proving the superiority of Christianity. Because you have to have, I mean, for him, you, you, you have to have some sense of what a true religion would look like if you're going to be deciding between religions, is, is kind of, I think, what it is. And so he, he wants, so at least in this text, it's not so much like a philosophical, the impetus doesn't seem philosophical. Um, it's much more sort of like existential. Like you're a person, you come down the mountain, what on earth do I do with all of this stuff? But that doesn't mean that he's not being influenced by that. I just don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, question I have. Let's get biblical for a second. So, how does Bart deal with like Paul's argument in Romans one that what can be known about God is manifest to humanity because of the created order? Because like Paul's logic there seems to be look at the particular and you reason up to the universal and the order of knowledge, even if the order of being begins with you know. So I'd say a couple of things. Um, first, I'd say that th- th- there is a kind of like, y- you know, I-, I think I said this um, recently to Colin, maybe, that there's like a, I think in the tradition you see kind of two, this is way over broad brushstrokes, but like two different interpretations of Romans 1. Um, one one is kind of like an internal um, uh, interpretation where there's this sort of pre-rational, immediate 
sensus divinitatis that we have, right, in Calvin's term, right, we have this kind of like immediate illumination. Um, and so when Romans 1 says, you know, in the things that are made, it doesn't mean that you're performing some sort of like Thomistic beginning from the thing caused and then reasoning back to the, to the necessity of the first cause. It just means that creation witnesses to you and you have this kind of pre-rational sense that there is a God and he is good and, and so on. Um, I think like Augustine, you know, tends to be a little bit more of that. I mean, again, way over broad brushstrokes, but, you know, I think Augustine tends to be kind of, you know, more in that. Calvin is more in that. And then you have this kind of like, you know, um, um, maybe Thomistic is, is not quite right, but this, you know, kind of other view that sort of emphasizes the fact that like it's in the things that are made. And so the way we get to God is by reasoning from the things that we see out there. And it's not, the knowledge, we may have some pre-rational knowledge, but the emphasis is on this kind of like external knowledge. As far as what Barth does with natural theology, I would just say, I mean, personally, I, I really think um, his arguments are, are more, um, he's best when he's arguing against natural theology from John um, and the Johannine corpus and worst when he's arguing from Romans and the Psalms. So I think that, that he's just pretty weak on those things. Um, um, but anyway, that's that's sort of my own personal view. Um, oh, here and then and then we'll go back to um, just, Andrew. Just real quick, uh, and then uh, my original thing on on an early part in his commentary on Romans, um, which is not necessarily an exegetical work. And when he's arguing in Romans one, he argues that when when Paul is talking about that, he's showing how creation shows people that they really don't know anything about God. And so you, you it was like the, his indivisible attributes, his power, like those represent like the fact that we don't actually know anything about God. And then from there he proceeds with his first <coughs> argument, um, which you know I, I don't think is a great exegesis of the text, but that's how he does it. Um, I, I, I wanted to provide an anecdote to contrast with Theodore and also to um, maybe address some people who, who are thinking it's still maybe just a semantic point between between um, Bart and, and Theodore by giving a, a late Bart anecdote where he was invited by um, some German, uh, big German event where a Roman Catholic, um, a, a um, I think it was a Roman Catholic, a Jew, and a Protestant were invited to give a speech um, reflecting. <laughs> no, this is not a joke. It was to reflect on the Holocaust, and it was to reflect on. It was like, it was like, you said that at just the right time, Colin. If you had said that two seconds later. <laughs> oh, Yeah. 
Which, you know, is why Bart gets those accusations of fideism, right? It's like, <laughs> if you just agree with everything I say, then you'll see. No, um, yeah. But no, I think, that, I think that's a very helpful kind of, whereas Abukura clearly thinks that you have to sort of remove yourself from your sort of particular religious commitments and use reason, and then judge religions by reason. Bart sort of has the exact opposite sort of approach. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just say a comment about Abukura and about Bart. agree with maybe his general approach without agreeing with all the particulars. So for example, someone like Hooker will say, we can know a lot about God based on reason, but then he'll say something like the Trinity is beyond you know human knowledge in that way. Whereas Abukura wants to say, well, we can kind of get there after thinking it's all sort of something similar. So just because you think you might be able to start the process of knowing which religion is true based on reason doesn't mean you have to think that you can get to the Trinity based on reason. There, there are other there are middle options in that yeah. And then in terms of Bart, I think one objection you could raise is just the, the question is like, is that actually correspond to experience? Like, do all Christians uh, think they know God based on this kind of mere miraculous, I'll just use telepathy again, kind of uh, experience of God? Or, or in your experience, did you come to know things about God based on reflecting upon the world or based on like the inspiration of scripture, correctly interpreted? Yeah, yeah. No, I think those are all those are all good points. And the reason I put Abukura in here is because he clearly is an extreme on the sort of like rationalistic side, which pairs nicely with the, the kind of the other. One thing I would draw attention to is that if you think about what Luther talks about with the relationship between reason and faith, um, you know, what is it that Abukura thinks religion consists in? Um, he says. God, uh, the permitted and the forbidden, and eternal reward and punishment. So when he thinks that you can sort of prove religion rationally, he's thinking in terms of those sort of three categories. Um, whereas I think Luther and the Heidelberg Disputation wants to say, yeah, but that's actually not, um, unless by the reward and punishment and the permitted and forbidden, you're going to drive people to the gospel. That sort, of, that sort of proof doesn't actually do anything beneficial for the people who hear it. Um, I think Abukura just has a very sort of different understanding of of, uh, yeah, of, um, of these things. So I was just informed. I had the, the, the good sense to ask what the time limit was so that we didn't go over, and then I was informed that we were already five minutes over. So um, I think um, if uh, we'll, we'll just sort of end it there. But thank you all. Wait. Oh, he said 4.30. Well, no, and Dale just said 4.32. 4.30 is what the schedule says. Okay. So, we'll stick with the schedule. Oh, he told you five? All right. Supposedly a tour of the grounds if it wasn't pouring rain. And I don't think it's not pouring rain right now. Okay. So, is Michael here? I think. Okay, great. So, Michael's going to come talk. So, we're going to end this now. But thank you guys all for everything. Um, it was a pleasure. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.